Missions Conference, and it is appropriate uh, before we launch into our study to just say thank you. I want to say thank you to our missions team, to Dave Burks and Jim Schweikert and Gary Strange and Mary Jane Strange and Ben Tierney and Artist Toll for their work in putting this together. Uh, thank you to Chad who taught us, uh, led us so well last week in thinking about a burden for souls and for those men who shared during the Sunday school time last week. Uh, Tony, thank you for this morning. It was an encouragement and blessing from the Lord. Thank you for that. I also want to thank Kathleen Pugh who is responsible for all of the artwork that you see, the, the posters and the PowerPoint slides. If it were up to me to produce something like this, we'd still be waiting. Uh, and we would die waiting, really, because uh, I could never do that. Um, but thank you to her for using her gifts in that way. Thank you to Debbie Jones, who is basically the oil in the office machine that keeps it moving. And she is tireless in her service of the Lord. And thank you. I know I already mentioned Mary Jane, but thank you again to Mary Jane. She needed to step in at a time when, when Debbie was on vacation. And without her pinch hitting, it would have been uh, quite an overwhelming task. And so we're thankful for that, Mary Jane, as well. Uh, can we just thank all of them? Thank you. One last thank you, not in connection with the missions conference, but today is Jordan Tyra's last Sunday as the director of our youth ministry. Uh, he'll be officially done after he teaches Wednesday night, but he has done a fantastic job in leading our youth ministry in teaching them. In these last two years, he has grown, and the Lord has used both him and his wife Shana in the lives of our teens, and we are thankful for that. I remember I told Jordan actually this, this week that, uh, that the thing that stands out is, uh, is our mission trip to Guatemala. He uh, had planned, was very well planned and prepared for us to go, and our week of ministry went wonderfully, and his speaking at the youth conference was a great blessing, and, uh, and then everything went sideways, and we didn't get to come home for a few days, but... By God's grace, Jordan was just unfazed through the whole thing, and he just kept all the kids focused on the, the sovereign goodness of God in delaying our return to the U.S., and uh, just, a, just a great blessing to see him uh, working and doing that, and uh, would you join me in thanking him? He's up there, so he doesn't have to come up here. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you. We praise the Lord for Jordan uh, and for Shana. Be praying for them as they, uh, they will leave to move on Thursday uh, to New York City. New York City? Uh, get a rope. All right. Let's turn to Mark chapter 5 this morning. Mark chapter 5. As we conclude our missions conference, thinking about what it means to have a burden for souls, not only in having a burden for souls in our personal evangelistic efforts, but a burden for souls actually should fuel our partnerships with missionaries around the world. My prayer is that as we consider this encounter between Jesus and the demon-possessed man, that this burden for souls Maybe if you don't sense that you even have one, will be stirred in you, and if you do, it will be refreshed 
and enlarged. Let's begin by reading Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, by the way, and you don't know where to find that, it's on page 840 of, uh, of the Pew Bible. And we will read the first 20 verses of chapter 5. This is what the Spirit says. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, "'What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me.' For he was saying to him, "'Come out of the man, you unclean spirit.' And Jesus asked him, "'What is your name?' He replied, "'My name is Legion, for we are many.' And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country." Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, "'Send us to the pigs, let us enter them.' So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened." And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him, and he did not permit him. But said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pause, having read that last sentence, and wonder when was the last time we reflected on all that Jesus has done for us and marveled. Would you cause that to happen in our hearts this morning as we consider your word? We pray for your help, that you would teach us, that we would see clearly what you have said, that you will give us open hearts and ears to hear and receive and love and believe and live according to what you have said. We pray, Lord, that through the preaching of your word that your church will be strengthened this morning. That through the preaching of your word, our burden for a lost world will be strengthened. That through the preaching of your word by the power of your spirit, that any who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ 
will come to know him today. We'll see him for who he really is and run to him in repentance and faith. We ask it all for the glory of Jesus and in his name. Amen. This text is all about the power of Jesus. In fact, throughout Mark's gospel, over and over and over again, we see stories highlighting the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus over nature. The power of Jesus over disease. The power of Jesus over death. And here, the power of Jesus over demons. And here is what I want us to see here, what I think comes through, especially in the last six verses, and that is that experiencing Jesus' power in our lives changes the focus of our lives. Experiencing Jesus' power in your life changes the focus of your life. So first think with me about the power that we see here, the power. The greatness of Jesus' power in this text is magnified by the power that has conquered the man that he meets. You only know how good your team is when you play a strong team, right? You only know if you really are good at arm wrestling if you arm wrestle a strong person. If I go to my, you know, almost 10-year-old son, as strong as he is for a 9, almost 10-year-old, and we arm wrestle, it is no test of my strength. But my 12-year-old, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I might be kidding, but I don't know. At some point, I stop challenging. Um, All dads know this. At some point, you stop with the wrestling on the floor because they get bigger than you are, and they will hurt you. Um, So, But the greatness of Jesus' power is magnified by the greatness of the power that he meets in this man. Jesus and his disciples have crossed the Sea of Galilee. They are now on the eastern shore in the country of the Gerasenes, and there they meet this demon-possessed man. And we get more information on this demon-possessed man than we get on just about any other. It's a very extended account. Often it's just Jesus encounters them. Sometimes the demon will say something to Jesus, but then Jesus casts them out. It's a very quick exchange. This is not a quick exchange. This is longer, and that's on purpose, so we should pay attention to it. But we get more. There's, we see him in the tombs. We see nobody being able to bind him. We see him crying out and cutting himself, all of these things. One person has written this imaginative description of what he might, look, might have looked like. I picture his eyes black and shifty and darting around like lightning. His face grimaced, distorted, framed with a distressed look, his brow stuck in a furrowed position, his hair unkempt, matted, and mangled, his teeth brownish-orange from stains, breath and body odor that could melt a candlestick, his body naked with no dignity, nails overgrown and curling like claws, arms bloody, scabbed from self-mutilation, ankles adorned, adorning fetter anklets from previous botched attempts of chaining, his home, a cave, with a continuous smell of decomposing human corpses. 
It is a grotesque figure that he meets. This imaginative description uh, reminds one of Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. How he was once Smeagol, a rather ordinary-looking hobbit, but he degrades and dissolves into this gnarly creature. But it's not his physical appearance that's really the issue. Mark gives us a different picture. First, Mark tells us that he is helpless. He is helpless. If we were some of the herdsmen here, or residents of the Decapolis, quite honestly, we probably would have concluded that this guy is insane. That, is, that would have been the diagnosis of the day for someone like this. And the only thing you can try to do for someone in that kind of condition is to restrain them for their own protection and for the protection of others. But it doesn't help. Verse 3, no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. And then look at the last sentence in verse 4. No one had the strength to subdue him. This man is beyond help. Who knows how many people have written him off as someone who simply cannot be helped. He just needs to stay out there in the tombs. He is too far gone and just leave him alone. That's the best thing to do is just stay away from him. But he's not just helpless. He's hopeless. He lived among the tombs. The tombs were a place of isolation, a place of death, a place an unclean place. It was believed to have been haunted by demons. It's the only place he seems to fit in anymore is among the tombs. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And the way this is written, this is just continual night and day. If he's awake, he is screaming. If he can't sleep at night, he's cutting himself. He is doing this over and over and over again. He's trying to get relief. He's desperate for it. He's longing for a change. And in his mind, it's never coming. Now, friends, just note that. Just pause for just a second. Self-mutilation is an expression of hopelessness. It is not the action of one who has hope. It's an attempt to deal with the pain of life, but it is not sufficient to give any help at all. This man is helpless, this man is hopeless, but in the end, you know his problem is actually not mental. His problem is not physiological. His problem is not even emotional. His problem is spiritual. The problem certainly is revealed in his body. It is revealed in his mind. It's revealed in the crying out. It's revealed in the cutting. But his problem is rooted in his soul. And it is a problem that he simply can't overcome by his own willpower. Look at how strong this is. Verse 9, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. So if you're, you have to know a bit more to understand why that is 
significant that he would call himself Legion. Legion was the name of a Roman battalion that was made up of about 6,000 foot soldiers. Essentially, an army of evil is dominating his existence. This is not one lone stray demon. This is an entire battalion of evil that has overcome him, that has conquered him. How did he get this way? I don't know. Was it, was it sudden? Did it begin small with aberrations of behavior or speech and got worse over time, became more violent, less controllable? We don't know. But what we do know is this. The power of evil that is at work in him is no match for the power of the Christ who meets him. That we know. The army of demons who would salute Satan himself must submit to Jesus. There is a power greater than the power of evil in the world. No doubt we could look around and know that evil is at work everywhere. And if we take an honest look in the mirror, we know that evil is at work in there as well. But there is a power greater than the worst of all evils. Do you know that? Are you convinced of that? Are you convinced of, say, Romans 5, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more? When we sing, my our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Do you actually believe that? Do you believe that the power of the Lord Jesus Christ is superior to any other power? Do you believe that on the last day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Why? Because He is supreme. Because nothing can come into contact with Him and go unchanged. It will either be condemned in the lake of fire or it will be changed forever and renewed and live forever in the heavens, new heavens and new earth and glorified bodies. There is no coming to Jesus and leaving the same way and in the same manner. Jesus is absolutely supreme. And the supremacy of Jesus here, the power of Jesus here is magnified when we really get a grip on how strong the power is that He comes into contact with. This is why, by the way, just by way of personal application, this is why it is so important that we not lose sight of our own sinfulness. Because when we lose sight of our own sinfulness, when we think, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, and I'm not as bad as so-and-so, when we fail to look in the mirror and echo the words of the Apostle Paul that I am the chief of sinners, when we stop doing that, do you know what also gets diminished? The glory and power of Jesus Christ. If you don't think much of your sinfulness, you won't think much of your Savior. And this power that overcomes this man, that's overwhelmed him, that has conquered him, will be conquered. And that actually comes out. Let's start reading in uh, verse 7. And crying out, no, now pay attention to the pronouns and how they change, okay? Everybody got that? Everybody know what a pronoun is? If not, ask the person next to you. 
but wait until after the service, all right? Just listen, listen to the pronouns and how they change, all right? Beginning in verse 6, And when he saw he, the demon-possessed man, saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. That falling down in other places is worship. He prostrated himself. He paid homage to him. He bowed, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. Things begin to change here, and Jesus is going to be interacting directly with the demons. And he, be- he again, begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him. You heard the word begged? Look at it. Verse 10, verse 11. In verse 7, the man has the audacity to adjure him, which means to call him, to make an oath and keep it, that he won't torment him. Why would he do that? Because do you know what will happen in the end to the demons? They, the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever from the lake of fire. That day is coming. So, look at verse 13. So, they begged him, send us to the pigs. Look at the first phrase in verse 13. This is so wonderful. He gave them permission. These demons can do nothing except by the power and word of Jesus. And in the same way that God looks at Satan at the beginning of Job and says, okay, you can have your way. Go. After God initiates the conversation with Job. It is not beyond the sovereign control of God that these demons have taken over this man. But when it comes their time to be done... They need Jesus' permission to do anything. So they go into the pigs. The pigs go down the hill, and they're drowned. The power of evil that overwhelmed this man was conquered by the power of Jesus Christ. That which held him in bondage was broken. The physical chains, he could rip them apart, but the spiritual chains, he couldn't do anything about them. Jesus came, spoke, and it happened. Friends, before we go on, isn't isn't that basically the testimony of every Christian alive today? Isn't that the testimony of that you have, that the power of evil overwhelmed us. Sure, we weren't living in the tombs, but we were dead in our sin. We didn't appear insane to our friends, but our thinking was disordered by depravity. We weren't in the chains of restraint, but we were bound in slavery to sin. And just as this man was helpless and hopeless, humanly speaking, so were we. But the power of Jesus set us free. Jesus said, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. 
Now, for the one who is not a Christian, this is so important to see because in our natural condition, we are helpless and we are hopeless. We cannot do anything to change our own condition. But in Jesus Christ is the power that can forgive our sin, break its power, forgive us, give us new life, give us hope, give us eternal life in Jesus Christ. Mark 10, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. No matter what it is that is in your past or that has a grip on you now, no matter how your thoughts are disordered, no matter how much you don't know or don't do or haven't done, or think that you're beyond that, you are too far gone, you may as well throw me to the tombs, put me out there, because I'm beyond hope. Friend, you are never beyond hope so long as Jesus Christ and His power is active. Never. Never. As you're sharing Christ with that friend, with that family member, with that one who continually shuts you out, who continually shuts you down, who's told you to shut your mouth and go away and is antagonistic to the gospel, you don't have enough power to overcome them. So just take that right off your shoulders. You don't have the power to overcome that obstinance, that resistance, that opposition. But Jesus Christ does. So we keep joyfully sharing the gospel, don't we? We keep pointing people to Jesus. We keep calling people to repentance and faith. The other thing that really has to be said is that if you are a Christian and you've entangled yourself in some sinful pattern and you're beginning to feel hopeless like it can never change, just mark this story in the Bible. Because whatever it is that you have given yourself to, is no match for the Savior who gave Himself for you. And if you will heed His voice and repent and walk by faith and seek to change by the power of the Spirit, He will empower you to put to death the deeds of the body. He will. But finally, if we're going, if, if, if we're going before we get off power here, if, I, if we're going to have a burden for souls, isn't this how we need to see the world? Isn't this how we need to see the world? Not as good people who just need a little push and a little religiosity, but people who can't help themselves, people who have no hope because they have no Savior. This changes everything. Because if you think the biggest problem facing humanity is political or educational or medical or sociological, your burden will not be for the soul so much as it will be for the body. Now, we must not be uncaring about the body. Politics and education and medicine and sociology, all these things have their place, but they cannot be a substitute for or take priority over the chief problem of man. And the chief problem of man is that we are overwhelmed by evil. We are desperately wicked. We are wrecked by sin, and we need a Savior. 
And the power of Jesus to set us free from evil, to set us free from sin, it will not be on the ballot box in November. It is not in the university, and it's not down the road at Franciscan Hospital. It is in the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. That is where the solution to man's chief problem lies. You must be convinced of this. You can't hear about the chief problem of man and then in the back of your mind go, yeah, but don't give lip service to God's view of our problem. If we give lip service to God, then our burden won't be what it needs to be and will never be of right use to God in this world. Never. The power. The power overwhelmed him, but a greater power set him free. The second thing to see here is the change. Experiencing Jesus' power in your life changes the focus of your life. Well, what is the change here? Well, the change is immediate and it's noticeable. Look at verse 15. The herdsmen and the people from the city come and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. He's sitting there. This is a guy who never sat still, you understand. He roamed all over the mountains. He was in the tombs. He was crying. He was cutting. He never sat still, but here he is. He was restless as all get out, and here he is sitting. He's clothed. In the parallel account in Luke chapter 8, we learn that this man is roaming around naked. It is a picture of public shame. And now, he's been covered. His shame has been covered. He is clothed. And he's in his right mind. His thinking had been disordered, and to those around him, he was completely insane. But now, by the power of Jesus, he's in his right mind. This is why they're afraid, you understand. I wouldn't make a big deal out of it except for their response. If he was all, you know, if on Saturday afternoon you could always find him sitting clothed and in his right mind, this would be no big deal. But this particular Saturday afternoon... But we'll take it off the Sabbath. This particular Thursday afternoon, he's sitting. He's got clothes on. He's speaking with comprehensible words. He's thinking clearly. And the end of verse 15, 15 says, they were afraid. This is the same fear, by the way, that the disciples experienced in the Greek language is the same fear that the disciples experienced at the end of chapter 4 after Jesus calmed the sea. Verse 41 of chapter 4, if you want to just glance up there, they were filled with great fear, which literally is they feared with feared great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The power of Jesus struck them with fear. It's the same fear that later in chapter 5, there's a woman who comes to Jesus. She's got a bleeding disorder. She's had it for a long time. But then she touches Jesus, and when she realizes that the power of Jesus has been effective, 
She is struck with fear. Chapter 5, verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. It struck them with awe. They are trembling. They are mesmerized because the power of Jesus has brought this unimaginable, unthinkable change in this man's life. Do you know what strikes people so often? Is the change that, people, that Jesus brings in your life. How is it that every other contractor acts like this when things go wrong, but you act like this? How is it that in this time when fear and fear-mongering are the, the name of the game, you seem to be at peace and walking a different way? How is that? It's shocking. Aren't you afraid? Aren't you afraid of what will happen? Aren't you afraid if your candidate doesn't get elected? It strikes people. It's striking to see the change that Jesus brings. As Tony, as you were talking about the change that Jesus brought in your life this morning, apart from the loss of the hair, you know, the the long hair and the metal head and all of the, all of the lifestyle things that came with that, it must have just been a shock to your friends when Jesus got hold of you. The power of Jesus just completely radically changes him and he goes back and, you know, and his guitar playing is the same, but his soul is different. It's a shocking thing. It puts you in awe, not of the person, but of what happened to them. And actually, there's more to this change. This man, it's interesting, the man doesn't want to be in the tombs anymore. He doesn't even want to go home. He wants to be with Jesus. Look at verse 18. As he was getting into the he, meaning Jesus, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Now, this is not the first time that Mark has used that phrase, that he might be with him, though previously it was in the plural. Turn back one page to chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. This isn't a phrase that just comes up over and over and over again. Mark has already told us that Jesus called these men to be with him. This was to be with him in a special and unique way. And it seems that the demon-possessed man is raising his hand. Well, he's no longer, but the, Mr. X Legion raises his hand and says, Sign me up. I'm going. Can I, is there room in that boat? I don't have many clothes. I've been naked for a long time. I just got what's on my back, but I want to follow you, Jesus. Can I just get in the boat and go with you? Is there a spot for me in your circle? I want to travel with you. I want to see more of this power. I want to hear more of your words. I don't, I don't want to just sit here at home. I want to go with you back across the sea. He has big ideas for this new life, doesn't he? Yeah, they'll go anywhere. Just let me in the boat. 
But Jesus has other plans. Verse 19, He did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. In about the year 2007, around the time that Susan and I walked through our first adoption, we had a burden for West Africa. And we prayed that year, and we sought the Lord, and we investigated. And I remember going to a, driving from Nashville to, uh, to North Carolina, uh, Nashville, Tennessee, that is, uh, to North Carolina to a Southern Baptist Convention a missions conference and talking to everybody there who had anything to say about West Africa. And we wanted more than anything to go to Mali. That's where we wanted to go. We wanted to go and spend our lives there. But through the course of events, in God's providence, the Lord made it clear we would not be going. We would be staying. And our hearts have always been for the world. But God said, no, 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 you stay here. God arranged things such that we are here. We are here to partner with people like John and Pam in Chile. We are here to partner with people like Mark and Roxanne in South Africa. We are here to partner when they were in Kenya and then in South Africa with Gary and Mary Jane. We are here to partner with Mark and Jill up in Quebec. We are here to partner with. In the past, some of you may have had big ideas for following Jesus, where it would take you or what you might do, or, and those never came to fruition or they just simply got changed. Others of you may think if you're really going to serve Jesus, it takes big plans, big moves, new cities, new countries, new continents. But Jesus' words to this man to go to his friends, his family, his hometown are no less important than his words to the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. Because it is not up to the individual following Jesus where they land to serve. It is up to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He moves his people as he pleases. I want to tell you, whatever you think your plans are in the future, and hold on to them loosely, what I can tell you for sure is that the Lord Jesus has you right here, right now. You are not in a holding pattern that one day you'll really get to share the gospel. You'll really start ministering to people. You'll really start doing X, Y, or Z. Friend, if you don't do it now, you wouldn't do it there anyway. But for His purposes, God has planted you right where you are at. He has given you the neighbors that you have. He has you in the workplace that you're in. He's given you the associates you have. He has given you the boss that you have. He has placed you where you are at. He's given you other people that 
coach and cheer on soccer next to you at the soccer field. He's, he's put people in that PTA or that PTF or whatever, PT, all the letters that come after that at the school that you happen to attend. He's put people in the co-op you go to. He has put people all around you. And his plan is right here, right now, to be obedient to him. Right here, right now. There is no sense in dreaming about something else when the reality is God calls us to obey now. And if we've been changed, as this man has been changed, then when Jesus changes our plans and he sets us down and he gives us our marching orders, then we'll respond like he did. Look how he responds. Verse 20, there's not, a, you know, sometimes there are these textual variants where in some manuscripts, you know, there's verses that may be in one manuscript and not in another. There's not a textual variant here where this guy complains to Jesus about what he just told him. All right? He just, look at what happens. He doesn't even say anything. And he went away <laughs> and began to proclaim. That's a different word than tell. The tell there that Jesus says is to talk. The proclaim here is he's the herald coming to town and telling the good news. He's, now he's not crying out in pain. He's crying out words of salvation. Proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. He just wants to please Jesus. Wherever that is, wherever Jesus sets him down, he wants to please Jesus. That's why he doesn't blink an eye when Jesus reroutes him and sends him back home and tells him, this is what you need to do. And what is it he needs to do? Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Tell them of your depravity, of the tombs, of the isolation, the disordered thinking, the cries for relief, the self-mutilation, the helplessness, the hopelessness. But don't stop there. Don't make much of your sin. Mention it so that you can make much of your Savior. Talk about how Jesus, when he got off the boat, he didn't take one look at you and turn and go the other way because you weren't really Jesus' type of follower. That instead, Jesus got off the boat and he looked at you and he had compassion on you and he didn't move away from you, he moved toward you and he didn't ignore you, he spoke to you. And he didn't wish you well, he made you well. Tell them all that the Lord has done for you and tell them how He has had mercy. Dear Christian, don't you know that's true in your life? We have the greatest news on the planet. It's better than anything you will read in your online news service. It's better than any outcome of anything else. It is that God in His mercy has sent the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem sinners. That He came and He lived the life that you could never live. He fully pleased God in your place through His life. And then He fully satisfied God's wrath against your sin in His death. And He was raised from the dead, victorious, the vindication that He is who He says He is. That what His death has truly satisfied God and has accomplished the redemption that He promised. And that He's ascended to the Father and that He will return. And that all who turn from their sin, all who turn, leave it behind and turn to Jesus Christ. Trusting in Him will be saved. 
tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He's had mercy on you. You know what that word mercy means? That means there was a great, terrible, unending punishment that you deserved. But you did not receive it because Jesus took it for you. Your friend doesn't just need to be in church next Sunday. Your friend needs to be in Christ. And that's why we share the gospel. When we, that's why we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. It actually increases our burden for the lost when we fix our eyes on Jesus. This guy just wanted to honor and glorify and obey Jesus. The question is, do we? Do you? He's not actually, we have no words here that says that he was motivated by the lost condition of his city. We just know Jesus said do it, and he wants to do what Jesus says to do because of all that Jesus has done for him. And for us, while the lost condition of the world is a powerful motivator, the greatest motivator there is, is the glory of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest motivator to share Jesus. Because when the lips of one of His people speak about Him as the only hope in a hopeless world, do you know who it glorifies? Jesus. It glorifies Jesus to speak of Him that way. It glorifies Jesus. If all we're doing is saying, come to church because our church is really cool, do you know what that glorifies? Your church. Praise the Lord, there are many churches that when a, when a guest comes in or when somebody invites them to come along, they preach the gospel and point them to Jesus. But in the end, the name of Gray Road Baptist Church will fade into oblivion. Nobody will remember it. Why would we want to when we've got the name of Jesus to hold on to? Experiencing Jesus' power in your life changes the focus of your life. It changes the focus of our daily activities that apparently they are not meant primarily for us. That they're meant for the glory of Jesus and the good of others. It changes our view of divine appointments. That divine appointments aren't some mystical experience that I'm waiting to discern by feels. But rather, wherever God sets me down for this day, this week, this year to go into it with a view of being His servant, His mouthpiece. To plead on behalf, to, 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 to echo the appeal of God in Christ, be reconciled to God. It changes our view of going on mission trips and being long-term missionaries. These are wonderful things and certainly are used by God. But John and Pam will tell you, you aren't being less used by God if you never leave Marion County and you only share the gospel with those people that you encounter. You're not less of a follower of Jesus. It changes our view of giving to missions. It's not just contributing to a paycheck. It's taking the concern for worldly needs off the missionaries' minds so that they can focus on the spiritual needs of those that they are serving. That's what giving to missions does. Experiencing the power of Jesus in your life changes the focus of your life. What 
is the focus of your life, friend. Does it need to change? Where is your burden for souls? Is it based on how you feel each morning when you wake up? Because if it is, it will wax and wane and eventually it will fade into nothing. If our burden for souls is based squarely on the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, we will always have reason to share. We will always have passion. We will still fight against the sin of apathy. We'll always do that. But the thing we'll come back to isn't, do I feel passionate today? The question is, is Jesus worthy today to be exalted in my speech to unbelievers? And the answer is yes. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you thankful for what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful that though we were bound in chains to sin, you broke them. We are thankful that Jesus Christ has taken the punishment that we deserve. We are thankful that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, assuring us that we are justified, assuring us that our sin has been forgiven, assuring us that His righteous life has been credited to us. We are thankful that though we are weak and fickle, You still use us to proclaim Your glorious good news. And we pray, God, that by Your grace You will give us such a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for us that we wouldn't be able to stop telling others what the Lord has done for us and how He has had mercy on us. Make it so for Jesus' sake and in His name. Amen.